Welcome back to episode 11 of the Paul Sock Podcast. I'm Jerome Devitt. This week's episode has one very specific goal that contributes to multiple aspects of the power and decision-making topic, namely trying to get a better understanding of the document at the foundation of our political system, our constitution, also known as Bunrucht Neheren. We won't be covering every section or article of the constitution today, but rather trying to get a handle on how the document as a whole works, where it came from, and how it might develop into the future. To do this, I was firstly joined by Dr. Jennifer Kavanagh, lecturer in law in Waterford Institute of Technology. She's a media commentator. You'll probably recognise her if you've watched any election coverage in the last few years. But she's also the author of books Constitutional Law in Ireland and Electoral Law in Ireland. So to say that she's an expert in the field is somewhat of an understatement. One thing I'd like you to notice as you listen to her is that she speaks with precision and knowledge without being beholden to jargon, which can sometimes get in the way when we first encounter a new topic like this. We'll also be joined by Sean Garvey of the Referendum Commission to explain the key role his organisation plays in the build-up to a referendum that might actually change, or amend, our constitution. And later by Sinn Féin TD for Dublin Midwest, Owen O'Brien, who will talk to us about his proposal to include the right to housing in the Irish constitution, a useful case study for your exams given the long-standing homelessness crisis in Ireland, particularly its impact on young people. As always, I'd encourage students to download the Listen Along Guide from our website, www.pulsogpodcast.com, to help with your note-taking, and to make sure that you retain as much pertinent information as possible from our participants' insights. There'll also be a number of additional resources on the site, including an excellent article by my friend Dr. Fergus Ryan of Maynooth University, that I think is an excellent companion piece to this topic. At the end of this episode, I hope that you'll be in a position to come to your own conclusions about the Irish Constitution and the degree to which you might say that it does or doesn't, quote, represent the will of the people, as our subject specification asks you to do. If we're going to do that succinctly in the time allowed, we'd better dive right in. I started off by asking Dr. Kavanagh about what a constitution actually is and what the relationship between a constitution and the laws that a country makes might be. So the constitution is the basic first principles. It's like the skeleton of how the country should run. So with the skeleton, you have to add on your muscles, your blood vessels, everything. And that's exactly what your legislation is, which comes from the Oireachtas. So, for example, if you're talking about the right to vote, The constitution will just say people have the right to vote, but then you leave the legislation then to broaden it out to, well, who can vote and where do you vote and how do you count the votes? Because the constitution is just a small little document. That's all a constitution should be. And it leaves the legislature then to write the nitty gritty details of what needs to be there. And bear in mind, sometimes those details need to change as well, because the constitution that we have was written in 1937 Ireland is certainly not the same place as 1937 and allowing for the legislature to flesh out what it means gives that space for things to change and be reinterpreted and readapted where needs be. I continued by asking Dr Kavanagh about what some of the similarities and differences might be between the different types of constitutions that exist in this part of the world. There are certain commonalities that all constitutions will have. So one of the main ones would be the separation of powers, and that divides the legislature, which is the Dáil and Chanad in Irish terms, 
the cabinet, which is which is the, the second part of it, and then the judiciary, which is the third part. And they like to keep those all in their neat little boxes. So one doesn't try and tell the other one what to do too much. And that keeps a form of democracy where no one can really take over and tell everyone else what to do. So that's going to be there whether your constitution is in writing or it's not in writing, like with the UK. They have an unwritten constitution. The disadvantage of that is that you have to go through all the cases on what does a specific right mean. Like for the Irish context, we've heard nice little blue book. If a politician is stepping out of line, you can literally just throw it at him, say, read it. There's your role. Whereas in the UK, you can't. You literally have to go through a filing cabinet of information to figure out what's going on. Now, the Irish constitution tends to go into a bit more detail, say, on rights, on the way they would foresee, say, society being structured. Whereas if you look, say, at the US constitution, it's basically about two, three pages of the barest details of what needs to be there. The French one will be quite similar. They were all an early constitutional tradition, so it just set out the real basics of what needs to be there. Ireland in 1937 went into a bit more detail, and that's now what's being followed in other countries, such as South Africa and Pakistan, which would have been influenced by our constitution. And there the real main, main differences is a written or unwritten, or do you have just the basic nitty gritty, or do you have the basic foundations and a little bit more detail, and we went with a little bit more detail. Of course, the 1937 Constitution didn't just pop into existence fully formed, so I asked Dr Kavanagh about the document's origin, and about some of the ideas that influenced its composition. What we had in 1919 was what was called the Constitution of the First Dáil. Now, Ireland wasn't an independent country at that time, so it was more like a mission statement of a, of a company. So this is what we intend to do, yeah, but we know we don't have the legal power to do it yet. The 1922 constitution, which was the second one, was the treaty settlement. So that set up certain difficulties like Northern Ireland, uh, putting in uh, representations, say what we now have with the, with, the, with the Shannad, with say Trinity and UCD having their own seats in the Shannad that would have come through from the 22 constitution because they represented certain groups of people that were afraid they would lose their representation in a in a, a, a an Ireland that would be independent of the UK. So the 1937 constitution then, what happened with the 1922 was, you know, when you're drafting an essay and then you start crossing out different bits going, well, that doesn't work and I want to change that. And then your essay just turns into multicoloured lines and arrows going all directions. You haven't a clue what's going on anymore. That's what happened with the 1922 constitution. There was so many amendments and it got to the stage that some of the superior courts were going, lads, there's a line. You've gone so far past the line. It is now a dot on the horizon. So Eamon de Valera basically said, right, Grant, we need to sort this out, remove an awful lot of the symbolism of the crown as well, which was something Eamon de Valera was never quite happy with. So in 1936, they said, right, new constitution, we're sorting out this document that's turned into a mess and has gone beyond what was envisaged at the time. So the 1937 constitution then came out of that procedure and that's the constitution that we use now today. But there's one really important point with the 37 constitution. If you think back at that time period, there was a lot of dictatorships developing in Europe and it was a, it was a big jump to go from, well, this is what we got from a war of independence, civil war situation. Now we're going to this. 
And we also brought in what was known as natural law. So a lot of the rights you would read about, they would use the words inalienable and imprescriptible. What that means to the average person is these are rights that you have that you don't need to wait for anyone to give them to you. And you don't need to wait for anyone to pass law for you to get those rights. And that is natural law. And that was a whole sea change in comparison to what would have been there previously. So we were kind of pioneers in that regard, bringing that into the 1937 constitution. So I continued by asking Dr. Kavanagh about how we go about changing our constitution, both the legislative process and how a proposed referendum goes through the House of the Oireachtas, but also the role of the constitutional convention that was set up in 2012. The traditional way of changing the constitution was, and it's what's laid out in the constitution itself, is that a bill to amend the constitution is put before the Don and the Shannad, it gets voted through, then it comes to us to vote on it. And once we've said yes, it goes to the president to be signed. If it says no, well, sometimes you might go again. Sometimes you might just drop it. Whereas there has been more of a push now since the introduction of the Constitution Convention to put it to, shall we say, a state-backed panel, market research panel, known as the Constitution Convention. It's now gone to the Citizens' Assembly which in a way is a good method of trialling what way people would foresee constitutional change happening before you go off and spend all the money, which is in the millions now to have a constitutional referendum. So what they do is it's chaired by the Citizens' Assembly, is currently it was Mary, Ms. Justice Mary Lefoy, and there's a representative sample of people. With the Constitutional Convention, they included people from Northern Ireland, Citizens' Assembly, not so much. It's 100 people, uh, a mix of male, female, age groups, and they will deliberate on what is the most appropriate way to do the constitutional change. And they will report back to the chair and the chair will then report to the doll. And that report then will put together how they want to change the constitution. So a very good example would have been uh, the repeal of the Eighth Amendment. Very p political, very tense issue for a lot of people in the country on various sides. So they decided to bring it to the citizen, the Constitutional Convention, and they would tease out what would be the best way to go about this. So a lot of people were of the opinion that when they would report back that they would bring in incremental change. But people were surprised when they, they made the decision that actually, let's just go for repeal. So as a way of teasing out through a group of people who represent the average person out there, what was the best way to go about the, the repeal or the reform of that area? What I'll do in the episode notes for this episode is include a link to the citizensinfo.ie page on the Constitutional Convention where students can go to find out more about how the decision-making process there worked. It would certainly be a very relevant area for a paragraph in an essay on decisions impacting young people and how they've been made in recent years. I went on to ask Dr Kavanagh a little bit about the structure of the Constitution as a document and how our rights are articulated or presented in the Constitution itself. When you look at the Constitution as a document, the first bit deals with what the state is. The next bit deals with what the government, the judiciary, what they can do. And in a way, it's almost... Uh, the old idea of the social contract that we give the responsibility to however many TDs we have at the time 
to pass laws for us on the basis that we're also getting these rights written down. And they start with the trial of offences. So no one can be tried uh, unless in due course of law. They didn't specify what due course of law is. They left it open because, for example, in 1937, mobile phone data would not have been considered, but it is something that has to be done in due course of law now. So that's where it starts. It moves on to equality. Equality hasn't been as strong as people would think. It's really only helped for getting women on, on juries. But it does say that the state acknowledges that everyone is equal, but there will be times that people have to be treated in a different way. So, for example, if you're a student who has dyslexia, you get extra time in exams or extra resources. Doesn't mean you're not, that the people who are not getting those supports are not being treated equally. They are just recognising the differences that are there. And then it moves on to what they call the unenumerated rights. Unenumerated meaning it's not written down, but it says the state will do everything in its power to protect the personal rights of the citizen, but doesn't say what they are. Because personal rights have changed over the course of time in Ireland. So if they can interpret it in with the general scheme and the general spirit of the document, you probably have a good chance of getting it in then. And then we move on to the specific rights. So for example, the right to life, uh, the right to family life, the right to education. And education is quite interesting because that's where your parents are actually given more rights over you because they look on parents as your primary educator because they kind of teach you how to talk and walk before you get into school and they recognize all that. And then you get into say property rights. And there's one quirky bit that we have in the constitution and that's the director principles of social policy. And they're things the Oireachtas should be thinking of when they're creating legislation, but it doesn't give the power to anyone to say, hey lads, what are you doing? You should be looking at this stuff when you're writing legislation. And that comes into the big debate on say socioeconomic rights. And they would be things like the right to housing, the right to shelter. They're generally things that there's a lot of political pressure on at the moment. But if you remember with the separation of powers that say the, the courts can't tell the Oireachtas what to do. So for example, someone can't march up to Dunleary Ratdown Council and say, hey, give me a house because they wouldn't be able to just give them, the courts couldn't order the government to give the money for your particular house. So that's a big debate that's coming into it that yes, we maybe need to have a better protection for those kind of things, but how can we do it effectively so it gets to the end point that you want at the end of the day? In this week's Untangling the Terminology, I wanted to get a better grasp of one of the areas that Dr. Kavanagh mentioned in the last section, the idea of socio-economic rights, such as the right to housing. So I asked one of my local TDs here in the Dublin Midwest constituency, Owen O'Brien of the Sinn Féin party, about his proposed legislation to have a referendum to put the right to housing into our constitution. Deputy O'Brien is really well placed to address this issue because he's the author of the book Home, Why Public Housing is the Answer. In our discussion that follows, you should remember that I'm not asking you necessarily to agree with his position, but I am asking you to engage with the ideas behind what he's suggesting. To do that, 
I started by asking Deputy O'Brien why he felt it was an issue that should be laid out in our constitution at all, rather than just being a part of normal policy or normal laws that the Oireachtas would pass. Well, I've become convinced over a number of years that having uh, a right to housing enshrined in the constitution would be a helpful tool uh, as part of of a package of measures to address the housing crisis. Um, It's not a silver bullet, um, uh, contrary to what uh, opponents of it say, enshrining the right wouldn't automatically give everybody the right to uh, a free house. There wouldn't be a queue outside government buildings the day after the passing of such a referendum of everybody looking for keys. What it would do, according to legal experts, uh, uh, much more uh, eminent uh, and scholarly on these matters than me, is it would place an obligation on the state to progressively realise the right to housing and to vindicate that right over a period of time. And given that, particularly in the last 30 years, successive governments uh, here have failed to do that, I think it would be useful. The purpose of such a right is not to create a a litigious culture where everybody whose rights are infringed goes to court. The very opposite. It's actually to create an environment where government realises that it has to vindicate that right. How government chooses to do so is a matter for elected politicians. That's the democratic process. Whether you want a market-led approach or a state-led approach or a mixture of both, that that is purely a matter for for the Oireachtas. But what the constitutional right would ensure is that one, the state has an obligation to do something which currently it does not have uh, the right to do. And two, if the state were to ignore that right, um, uh, then it would provide the opportunity uh, uh, for that to be addressed in the courts. But ultimately, the idea is to stay out of the courts and force the obligation on the state and the state to act. Because Deputy O'Brien is a legislator, I asked him to talk me very briefly through the mechanical process of how such a bill would take its journey through the Oireachtas and about how a public campaign might be structured. So the first thing is you need a constitutional amendment bill. So that's a piece of legislation that identifies which section of the constitution you want to amend and what the amendment is. Uh, you introduce that in the Oireachtas in the normal phase, first stage. Basically, you just introduce the debate without or the bill without debate. That puts it on the order paper. Then you have to have a second stage debate, either in private members time or government time. And that's where TDs and senators debate the generality of the bill. If passed through the Dáil or the Shannon, it then goes to committee for detailed scrutiny amendment. And then when it comes out of committee, it goes back to the chamber for what we call report and final stage uh, where you can address any outstanding issues. If the bill is introduced in the Dáil, it goes through all of that phase, then pops over to the Shannon. That's repeated. Uh, and unless there's any changes in the Shannon, uh, uh, then uh, it's signed by the president. There's a, an unusual feature of constitutional amendment bills, which is the uh, the uh, uh, referendum has to be held within a defined period after the passing of such a bill. And therefore, obviously, if you want to hold a referendum, you want to make sure that you pass the bill uh, at a time uh, where you have your preparations for the referendum campaign uh, adequately in place. And then once the bill is passed, uh, I suppose the informal referendum campaign starts, but not until uh, the establishment of a referendum commission. Uh, and the formalising of the date, just a formal referendum campaign a start. And then ultimately it's a matter for the campaign sides uh, for and against, and then obviously for, for the people themselves. As the deputy said, a constitutional amendment isn't a silver bullet. So I wanted to find out what the possibilities and limitations of this approach might be. And, and the first thing I'd say is anybody who's interested in this, there's wonderful research uh, produced by the Mercy Law Centre. Um, they've done three reports over a number of years looking at different aspects of this debate. And there's also a civil society campaign called Home for Good, led by a range of individuals and organisations who have actually brought together some of the country's leading constitutional law experts to advise. And 
they proposed a wording um, uh, which is different from mine uh, and I actually think is probably superior to mine given the expertise involved which they've uh, sent to the minister. But look, I mean, South Africa has a constitutional right to housing uh, and since that uh, right was enshrined in the post-apartheid constitution, arguably uh, housing needs, particularly for poor uh, uh, black Africans, has got worse. Um, other states have constitutional rights to housing and it doesn't in and of itself fix the problem. The reason why is because constitutions and the wording in constitutions don't build houses. That's what governments and contractors and local authorities do. Um, so, so addressing the housing crisis requires a, a variety of measures. In the first instance, in my view, it, it requires substantial increased investment by the state in public housing to meet social and affordable need uh, on public land. It also requires reform of a variety of, of issues such as land and finance, etc., uh, to increase private sector output. Um, uh, but in addition to all of that, and as a kind of an impetus to that, what a constitutional right would do uh, is it would, I suppose, create a pressure point. It would create a, 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 a another, uh, I suppose, push factor on government, whoever that government may be, to do more to address housing needs. I mean, I was writing a, an opinion piece for the Irish Times today, and the outgoing government's housing plan, Rebuilding Ireland, comes to an end this year. Uh, rents are higher than they were when that plan started. Uh, uh, house prices are higher, significantly higher than when that uh, uh, plan started. Homelessness, adult and child is, is higher. Um, uh, there are less houses being built than there should be by now. And there are less rental properties in the market than there were three years ago. So if, if you look at almost any indicator of, of housing output and housing need, we are worse off today than we were when Rebuilding Ireland was put in place in 2016. And therefore, I suppose that the value of the constitutional right is it says more needs to be done. The limitation, of course, is that it doesn't fix the problem. Uh, I've seen some people argue that a constitutional referendum enshrining a right to housing in the constitution doesn't build any houses and therefore isn't of any use. Well, if you think about it, um, uh, the constitution uh, uh, provides for a lot of rights. Uh, but in providing for those rights, it doesn't deliver them. Those rights are delivered by political institutions and, and, and legislation and, and whatnot. So, for example, the right to free speech or the right to privacy, which are in the Constitution, uh, uh, the right to political representation, you know, in and of themselves, written in a document, is theory. The practice, then, is what you do with that. But I suppose if you are like me and you believe that social and economic rights are as fundamental to the well-being of a society as political and institutional rights, then we should enshrine them in our constitutions. And to those critics of socioeconomic rights in the constitution who say, oh, but that's an infringement uh, by the judiciary in the responsibility of the executive and, and, and the parliament to make policy. Again, I would say that's a misinterpretation. A, a constitutional right to housing or indeed any other social or economic right in the constitution does not dictate to the executive and to the parliament how they should realize that right. That is a matter for the deliberative political process, for the electoral process, and ultimately uh, uh, for parliament and government. But do you believe that everybody has the right, uh, within reason, to secure an appropriate and affordable accommodation? I do, and therefore I think that should be in the constitution. Before I let Deputy O'Brien go, I wanted to ask him about how his proposed bill was going, what stage it was at, and how this issue might progress in the future. So look... Opposition private members' bills are different to government bills, right? When you're in government, you're, you're introducing a bill with the intention of it passing. Uh, uh, with the exception of the last uh, uh, Oireachtas, which obviously the government had a minority and a lot of opposition bills got through, 
it, we're now back to a majority uh, government and therefore there might be some bills that get through. In fact, I got a homeless prevention bill through uh, uh, in the last week of the Dáil sitting. But in the first instance, this bill is, is to instigate a debate. It is to force a debate on the floor of the Dáil and in the public arena through a variety of forums, including this kind of a forum, to say, should we have such a thing? The second thing, of course, is if we were to table this uh, uh, bill and get it passed, uh, and that is not completely beyond the realms of possibility, that would still be open to the government to amend it. So all we've done at this stage is introduce the bill at first stage. Uh, we may uh, use our own private members' time throughout the course of this year to introduce the bill. However, given that Home for Good have produced a superior bill, uh, and that became known after I'd introduced mine and I've met Home for Good, they can't come in and present it to the Oireachtas Housing Committee. I'm of the view at this stage that their wording is probably a better vehicle to proceed. One, because it is superior to mine because of the legal expertise. But two, it's not identified with any political party. It comes from uh, non-partisan civil society. So I suppose what I would say at this stage is uh, the Minister for Housing has that bill. The programme for government is a little bit ambiguous. It promises a referendum on housing, not necessarily a referendum to enshrine the right to housing in the constitution. But I'd like to hear the minister say that he has got the wording from Home for Good, that he's consulting with the Attorney General, and he intends to bring forward that or an amended version of that subject to the advice of the AG. Uh, uh, and if he were to do so, subject to the content of the bill, I think he would have the support of the overwhelming majority of the House. Significantly in the Oireachtas Housing Committee over the last five years, we have debated this issue at great length. Uh, and up until last year, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, who held a majority in the Dáil and in the committee, were against uh, a constitutional right to housing. When Home for Good presented to our committee at the end of last year, Fianna Fáil had shifted their position. The members of the committee said very clearly they wanted to proceed with a referendum to enshrine a right to housing in the constitution, which means that, strictly speaking, on the basis of, of that information, there is a majority, in fact, a very large majority of TDs and therefore senators who would be supportive of such a referendum. Fine Gael are still nervous. Uh, they haven't ruled it out, but, but they haven't ruled it in. Uh, but I would urge the Minister for Housing, given that he has a very substantive text given to him by some of the country's leading experts, let's progress with that text. And on that basis, I'd be more than happy to withdraw my bill and support a good government bill, because what we need here is, is not one-upmanship of one party or another. What we need is a housing crisis solved. That means more investment in housing. That means more reform of the delivery of housing. But I think also it means enshrining the right constitution. And I don't care who drafts the bill. I want to be part of a cross-party initiative to get such a wording into the uh, constitution. Uh, on a small final point, there, there is another value of a referendum. It's not just what goes into the constitution, but it also creates a public conversation. And for too long, housing was seen as an asset. It was seen as an investment in your future, you know, in a country with such weak pension provision, a way to ensure that you had some financial security when you reach the end of your working life. And because of that, we have a slightly skewed idea of home, home as an asset, as an investment, rather than as a public good within which we as individuals, families and communities uh, have an opportunity to flourish. So I also think the referendum would have an added advantage to have that big, broad public conversation about what is the meaning of home in our society. And having lived through what many of us have lived through during the Celtic Tiger years and the subsequent crash, I think there's a lot of people who'd be very interested in having that debate who are already rethinking how they understand the thing, the, the bricks and mortar in which they live. Uh, and maybe that conversation, just like repeal, just like marriage equality and just like others, I think would also lead to a broader 
cultural shift in how we think about home. And I think that would be a, an eminently good thing. One thing that I think you should take particular note of here is the fact that Deputy O'Brien frequently mentions the influential role that civil society organisations have had on this issue. These decisions aren't solely the responsibility of the doll. You can influence how they progress. So don't be afraid to have your say and share those views with campaign groups and even your own local TDs. In this week's The Student Strike Back, I asked Kate what part of the Irish Constitution she would like to change and why. The part in the Irish Constitution that I would change would be Article 41.2, which says that the state shall therefore endeavour to ensure that mothers shall not be obliged by economic necessity to engage in labour to the neglect of their duties in the home, which essentially says that women's primary role in society should be to stay at home. And of course, if a woman wants to stay at home, then they should be able to do that. But if they want to go out and work, then they should be able to do as they choose. Um, and I don't think it should be written in our constitution that women's primary role is in the house because that therefore implies that women can't do the jobs that men do, which is completely and, completely and utterly untrue. I would have loved to have talked to more students for this section, but alas, lockdown limited me this time around. Nonetheless, I would suggest that that question, what would you like to change in the Irish Constitution, is a really useful one for you to think about yourselves. If nothing else, it's an excellent way to show an examiner that you've really engaged with an idea. But make sure that you're clear on what way you'd actually vote in a referendum if it was called on that topic. So you can also show, maybe at the end of a paragraph or the, in the conclusion of your essay, that you've considered both sides of an issue. Earlier, we heard Dr. Kavanagh explain the role of the Constitutional Convention, but a little later we heard Deputy O'Brien mentioning the Referendum Commission, which is a different organisation altogether. So I contacted the Referendum Commission to see if there was anyone there who could explain to me exactly what it is that they do. Now, because we're Palsock students, we have to evaluate our sources of information to make sure they're reliable. So when I was talking with Sean Garvey, I asked him to explain what the Commission is and what his role in the organisation is. You'll need to decide for yourself whether you think he's a reliable source when it comes to explaining the role of the Referendum Commission. The, the Commission itself is a statutory body. It's set up under the Public Service Management Act. It has five members. Its chair has to be a either retired Supreme Court judge or a serving or retired High Court or Court of Appeal judge. Then there are four commissioners. Each of these are what's called ex officio, which means they have other statutory roles, and as part of that statutory role, they are also members of the Referendum Commission. And those people are the Controller and Auditor General, the Ombudsman, and the Clerk, which is the most senior civil servant, the Clerk of the Dáil and the Clerk of the Shannon. So they are the four members and then the Chair. So they are the Commission, they make the decision. I'm the Secretary, so we have a unit, an administrative unit that supports the work of the Commission, and I am the head of that unit. So I have the role of uh, secretary and providing secretarial service to the commission and also head of the administrative unit who do the work behind what the commission does. Well, it certainly sounds like I got the right man for the job. So I went on to ask Sean about the role that the commission plays. Here's how he explained it. Well, the Referendum Commission has three main roles set out in the legislation, which is the Public Service Management Act. It gives the Referendum Commission its powers and it's to 
make the public aware that a referendum is taking place, to explain what the issues are in a referendum or referendums and what those issues may be, and then to encourage people to go out and vote. Specifically, the Commission doesn't have a role in analysing the pros and cons of the various arguments for and against referendum proposals. Its role is purely to explain what they are and therefore what would be the implications of a yes vote and what would be the implications of a no vote. As, as I say, along with the role of encouraging the electorate to use their vote and to vote in the referendum. I then went on to ask Sean to outline how the Commission goes about explaining the relevant information around how referendums will work. Well, it's simply that the outcome of a yes vote in a referendum is actually relatively quite clear because the government proposed referendums. So whatever the subject matter is, the government will have proposed something saying, we want a change to the constitution to bring about the following effect. So that's quite easy. But then it's the mechanism that it uses to do that. So for example, I've been involved in the last three referendums and the mechanism that has been used is that the provision in the constitution that was the subject of the referendum has been removed and has been replaced by giving the Oireachtas the power to legislate for that subject matter. So for example, the most recent referendum was regulation of divorce. Divorce was already provided for in the constitution since 1986. So it wasn't a case of saying, should we have or should we not have divorce? It was a case of saying that the provision from 1986 in the constitution stipulated that a couple had to be separated for a minimum of four years before they could get a divorce. The government's proposal was to reduce that to two. Now, because the element on four years was in the constitution, the government couldn't change it. The only way the constitution can be changed is by a referendum. So what the government said was, we want to change that to two years. So we're asking the people to remove the clause in the constitution that provides for a four-year separation and replace it by giving the Oireachtas the power to legislate. So the referendum itself in that case merely changed the power base for the regulation of divorce from the constitution and gave it to the Oireachtas. The Oireachtas subsequently enacted legislation to bring in the two-year rather than four-year. So that's the mechanism that's used. And that's what we explain because people think, if I vote yes, does that mean I am voting for two years? Technically, no. Technically, what you were voting for was removing the clause from the constitution and giving the Oireachtas the power to legislate. The government had said in advance that in the event of a yes vote, they would legislate for two years. But technically, your yes or no in a referendum in that case, and it was similar for the other two I've worked on, meant that the clause or the issue was taken from the constitution and the power to legislate for it given to the Oireachtas. The more motivated students amongst you will rightly want to know how to find out more about the Commission and maybe even previous referendums that have been held. So I asked Sean Garvey where the best place to go about doing that would be. Um, we have um, our website is refcom.ie. So if anybody wants to find out about referendums, that's the place to go. Currently, there isn't a referendum proposal before the people. So therefore, that website is currently dormant. But the information is still on it. It's not active at the moment, but it's still on it. If you go on site, if you click on previous referendums, it will then take you in to all the referendums that the Commission has a role in. And within that then, what happens in each referendum is 
the commission produces a booklet which explains the subject matter in the referendum to the people. It also, at the end of a referendum campaign, produces a report where it sets out, for example, among other things, where it spent it, the money it was given and so on. Both of those documents for each referendum are on the website. So if somebody wants to get a very quick synopsis of what the last several referendums were about, you can get them there. Also, we have a frequently asked questions section for each referendum. So you can look on that and see what the particular issues that people are asking about on each of those referendums. I still had lots of questions for Dr. Kavanagh, so let's return to her now. We always want to be undertaking a critical evaluation of our topics, so I wanted to find out what some of the weaknesses of our constitution actually are. Here's how she framed her answer. Well, one of the criticisms structurally would be how well does the Irish constitution adhere to the separation of powers? So each of the three branches should be in their own little box, but, for example, if you look at the cabinet, you know, the the Thánaiste, Leif Radker, is also a TD. So you've got a cross-pollination there in what's going on. And when you look at the reality of politics, if the Oireachtas is supposed to be holding the government to account, is a junior member of a government party really going to stand up and, as they would say in Cork, give them down the banks and tell them off on what they're doing? So... In that, you could, there's probably ways that political scientists could think that maybe this could be done more effectively, but that is one problem that we have. We do keep the judiciary nice and separate in its own box, and they are well aware of how not just the, the separation is done, but that the separation is seen to be done as well. The other criticism that would be there is sometimes the Constitution can be reading as too much of a socially conservative document. So, for example, if you were to look at Catherine Zappone's case against the revenue commissioners on the interpretation of marriage, the court in that case said that because it was a you know certain Christian theology running through the document, that that branch of Christian doctrine wouldn't recognise marriage between people that were not a man and a woman, that we couldn't read it in. And that was the reason why we needed that referendum there wasn't necessarily something specifically saying that in the constitution, but it got interpreted into it. So as, as well as that, when you look at the women in the home issue, things like that, that maybe we shouldn't have gone too far into that space when we were creating that document. But that's an easy thing for us to say, sitting here at the end of 2020, looking back towards 1937. And beyond that, the constitution has stood up pretty well in terms of history because, as I said already, it's been followed, say, in South Africa when they were writing up their constitution after apartheid. It stood up very well in comparison to the 1940s when natural law was coming in then at that time as the, the more rational way to run your society. So on the whole, they've done a pretty good job of putting it together. It's like everything. You look at an essay you wrote for your junior search, you're going to look back at it and say, yeah, I could have done some things better that way. But that's a sign of maturity and a sign of development. So nothing is ever going to look perfect in hindsight. But if 90% of your document can stand there and it still looks good, I think you've done a pretty good job. But we have to be a bit forward-looking here. So I asked Dr Kavanagh about how the Constitution might change in the future and how that 
distant prospect of a united Ireland might possibly influence the future of that constitution. If you're looking at constitutional change going forward, you can look at it in three different ways. So the first way is we have a list of things to have referendums on. Uh, For example, women in the home. Um, Do we want to have that referendum on, on socioeconomic issues like housing, things like that? We will also have certain European aspects that need to be brought into our constitution. One of those would be the European Patent Court. So much of our industry is based on intellectual property, so such as people manufacturing things, developing new processes. They come under patents. We really should be prioritising the current list that we have, such as the European Patent Court, things like that, before we even get to the socioeconomic stuff. And then the third way that we would envisage constitutional change would be if there was to be a united Ireland. Now, two ways of looking at this. Structurally, with the constitution as it is, it would actually be okay. There's no, there's no legal you know, priority to change the constitution because Ireland, as it's, as it's envisaged in Article 2 and 3 that got changed there with the Good Friday Agreement, doesn't define Ireland in terms of, say, 26 counties or the island of Ireland anymore. So that's not going to be an issue. What would be an issue would be the symbolism. So you have a large group of people in Northern Ireland who want a united Ireland. You also have a very large amount of people in the north who don't see any resonance or any connection with Ireland. They view themselves in terms of being, say, loyal to the crown or being part of the union of the United Kingdom. So you would have to reflect that symbolism in some way for those people. It's like if you're having a if you're having a few friends over for tea and one of your friends happens to use a wheelchair, you can't just say, come on in, it's up 20 steps. You have to help them. Okay. And they're they're the best way I would envisage that happening is through that mechanism of, say, the Constitution Convention or the Citizens' Assembly, where it's 50-50 of both traditions and representing people who really couldn't care one way or the other. They just want a decent health service. They want decent housing. They don't particularly care who's on charge once those things are being looked after. So from that, probably the best way is to get them to look at the Constitution, say, right, what is a problem for you and what can we negotiate and what can be worked through? Because, say, the two different constitutional traditions of Ireland and the UK, there's still a lot of commonality there, say, on separation of powers, on the type of rights that we want to have, that you don't need wholesale change. But for the symbolism of it, it might be a reason for a new constitution. I did have one technical question that should be fairly self-evident to anybody who's actually looked at a printed copy of the Constitution. What you see is that one side of the page is Oscalga and the other is in English. So I wanted to know what happens if there's a difference of interpretation between the two languages. With the text being both in Irish and English, it's quite clear from the text of the Constitution that Irish takes priority. So if there is a difference in interpretation between, say, the Irish version and the English version, and there's a slight variation on it, it's always the Irish one that will take precedence. There's an example of this in blasphemy because the word blasphemy that they use in the Constitution didn't have, as far as I recall, a precise translation across. So one of the issues that was brought up in one of the cases was the word blasphemy as you have it in the the English version of the text 
doesn't really exist in Irish. So therefore, does blasphemy exist at all in the Constitution? Because you can't give me a carbon copy translation of what the words mean. And of course, I couldn't let Dr. Kavanagh go without getting her perspective on that perennial question, which appears on our spec, by the way, as to whether the Irish system of government, as laid out in our Constitution, represents the will of the people. She had an emphatic answer to this question. Let's see how she responded. I think the Irish Constitution definitely does represent the will of the people because it was voted in by a majority of the people in 1936. Any change that has happened by the first two amendments have been voted on by a majority of the people. So the first amendment uh, brought in the emergency powers provisions. It could be questioned whether that particular bit represents the will of the people because it was a pretty radical sea change in relation to what was there. The Second Amendment was your typos and little things that needed to be tweaked in the Constitution because you had a five-year period whereby anything could be changed in the Constitution bar that time period because they had that problem with the 1922. They were not going back there again. They learned their lesson. So I would definitely say that the Constitution that we have does represent the will of the people. There is a small issue, though, with getting the referendums through. So, for example... Um, if you look at, uh, say, any of the, the social change issues like divorce, um, terminations, things like that, uh, also getting in, say, free legal aid as, as a right that should be respected in the Constitution, it takes an awful lot of civil society to get that pushed through. So it does represent the will of the people, but sometimes it can represent it at a glacial pace, as in it goes very slowly to get where people want it to be. But when you look at other constitutional documents um, in other countries that can be changed by, say, just a vote of the parliament, that we don't have that system. So anything that needs to be changed has to be voted on by us. So of all the constitutions that are out there, probably the Irish one represents the will of the people more than any other constitution out there. Well, that's all we have time for today. Now, we haven't mentioned any key thinkers this time round, but do bear in mind that John Locke, who you'll remember from episode 9, was a firm believer in constitutionalism and natural rights, both of which should be fairly evident in this episode. I hope you found the episode useful, and all that really remains for me to do is thank our four participants, Sean Garvey from the Referendum Commission, Deputy Owen O'Brien, Sinn Féin TD for Dublin Midwest, our student representative Kate, who's definitely not a plant or related to me in any way, and finally and most importantly, the amazing Dr. Jennifer Kavanagh. All of these people gave up their time during a chaotic Christmas period to make your lives a little bit easier. So I'll end in my customary manner by reminding you that you're not apart from society, you're a part of society. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>